I want to uh, invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Taking a break just for this week from our series in the Gospel of Luke to consider together the resurrection of Christ as uh, we look at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 28 this morning. Uh, some of you have perhaps read or heard about the, uh, the engineering issues involved in the collapse of the Twin Towers on 9-11. The question was asked, why, why did those large buildings uh, fall down? Buildings the size of the World Trade Center, are, they usually have structural redundancies uh, built into them so that if one structural component is compromised or fails, uh, there, there are other parts of the building that are there to bear the load so that the building continues to remain standing. But on 9-11, uh, what, what seems to have occurred is that one structural component was compromised and it created a kind of domino effect so that as, as one component failed, then the weight came down on another structural component and it collapsed until eventually the whole edifice came crashing to the ground. Now, why am I telling you that? Because some of the Corinthian Christians thought that they could remove one of the structural components of the gospel and not actually bring the whole gospel down with it. You know, the issue here in, in 1 Corinthians 15 is that some of the professing believers in Corinth were saying, yes, Christ has been raised, but there is no resurrection of Christians. There's, there's no bodily resurrection of believers. And Paul is going to show them that if you take out the bodily resurrection of believers, as some of them were doing, then, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Preaching is a waste of time. And we are all in our sins. Paul is saying that if you, if you destroy this structural component of the gospel, you initiate a domino effect and the whole gospel comes crumbling to the ground. You cannot deny the bodily resurrection of believers without at the same time denying the bodily resurrection of Christ. So Paul is going to say because Christ has been raised, we are raised with him. That's his that's his real concern here, to show the unbreakable bond between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of Christians. Because Christ is raised, those who belong to him are raised with him. These basic structural elements of the gospel stand or fall together. And we're going to try to understand why and how that is the case as we look at this passage this morning. But before we read our text, let's pause and pray and ask for God's blessing as we sit under his word together. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word now, we, we ask for the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the assembly of your people. And give us understanding and, and bring your word home to our hearts. We ask that despite our proneness to distraction, despite our coldness of heart, that you would bring 
us, each one of us, to Christ. The Christ who has been crucified and and buried and has ascended after being raised from the dead and who is returning again once again in the future. We pray that he would be exalted in our midst this morning. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse... Actually, let's pick it up in verse 19 for context. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Well, today throughout the world, millions of Christians will do what they do each and every Lord's Day. They will confess their faith in a crucified and risen Christ. We have, we've done that together this morning using the Apostles' Creed that we believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the body, we said, because our faith is in a living Christ, a Christ who died but now lives. So the question I want us to ask this morning as we celebrate the reality of Christ's resurrection, it's this. What are we actually confessing when we confess that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? You might think, well, Pastor Jared, that's kind of obvious. We're we're confessing the, the historical fact of the bodily resurrection of Christ? Yes, absolutely. We're 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 confessing the fact that there there was a time in history where the heart of Jesus stopped beating. His brain ceased functioning. His his lungs stopped breathing in and breathing out air. His body, his corpse, lay in the grave. But we're also confessing, of course, that death could not hold him. And 
God, by the power of the Spirit, raised our Jesus from the dead. And of course, we're confessing the saving necessity of the resurrection. That if Christ did not die for our sins and was not raised for our justification, then we would still be in our sins. It's only because Christ has died and was declared righteous in his resurrection that we have grounds for pardon and being declared righteous in him. And of course, we're also confessing the, the inevitability of the resurrection of Christ because death could not hold down the sinless, holy Son of God. But as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28, Paul is helping us to understand that we are confessing at least three other things that I want us to reflect on for a few minutes this morning. First, Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Secondly, Christ's resurrection guarantees his universal lordship. And thirdly, Christ's resurrection guarantees that he will restore the kingdom of God to the Father and God will be all in all. And that's because Jesus didn't live and die for himself. Jesus Christ did not live and die as a private man, but as a public representative man. As a covenant head of the new humanity created in Christ Jesus. As the head of the new people of God throughout spanning the ages of human history. What Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 15 is he's confronting and confuting this error that had crept into the Corinthian church. That though Christ has been raised, there is no bodily resurrection for Christians. And so Paul says in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And here we come to this first thing that we confess that Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Christ's resurrection secures our resurrection. The key word here is the word first fruits, which its language rooted in the Old Testament. It means something like the, the representative sample of the greater whole that is inevitably to come. It's language that is found in Leviticus chapter 23, you remember the Israelites were instructed during the, the grain harvest to bring the first fruits of their crop and dedicate it to the Lord. A sample of the greater harvest. And Paul is using that idea and saying that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the harvest of resurrections to follow because Christ has been raised Brothers and sisters, you will be raised with him. To change the imagery, it's like, a, like, a carriage, like carriages on a train connected to the locomotive engine driving that train. Where the locomotive goes, the train will follow. See, we are linked to Jesus, Paul is saying here. Inextricably linked if we are Believers, And so as he has been raised, so we too will be raised with him one day. So you see how Paul is 
confronting the error, the error that the dead are not raised. He's saying, if you deny the resurrection of Christians, you deny the resurrection of Christ because the two are bound together. He is the first fruits. He is the start. He is the beginning of the resurrection harvest. The time of resurrection has already begun in the resurrection of Christ. And so that's why it's so important when we think about the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection, bodily resurrection, at the the end of this age, that we don't view them as two separate, unrelated, isolated events. It is actually one event occurring in two episodes. His resurrection secured our resurrection for the head is joined to the body so that where the head goes, the body follows. And you know that Paul, one of the things he loved declaring throughout his letters is that we have been brought by the grace of God through faith into union with Jesus Christ, union with him in his death, union with him in his resurrection. And that means for us personally, I'll just speak for myself one day unless Christ returns first. This body will lie in the grave. And it will decay. It will decompose. My spirit will immediately go into the presence of the Lord Jesus. But my body will lie in the grave awaiting the day of redemption and resurrection. But Paul is saying here that day has been secured already and is guaranteed. That day where we will be raised in glory is as inevitable as the resurrection of Jesus himself. It's no less sure that he will come and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And we wait but a little while for that reality to be consummated in time and in space. Just as the bodily resurrection of Jesus occurred in time and space. And so Paul is saying to these deeply mistaken, professing Christians, you've got it all wrong. You can't affirm the resurrection of Christ and deny the bodily resurrection of Christians. The dead in Christ will be raised because Christ has been raised. Such is the bond between Christ and his people. The head will not rise without its body. We're going back to the the train imagery for a second. The, The locomotive will not arrive at its destination without bringing the whole train along with it. It's as though the Lord Jesus has already entered into the heavenly places as the resurrected Son of God saying to the Father, Here I am in glory and the rest are coming with me. That's what Jesus has accomplished and secured in his resurrection. Because he was raised, we too will be raised. So the resurrection of believers to glory is inevitable because the resurrection of Christ, our head, our covenant representative, has already occurred. And so for those in Christ Jesus, dear friends, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. Is this the first thing we're confessing? That Christ's resurrection 
guarantees our resurrection. Here's the second thing that we confess. That the resurrection of Christ guarantees his lordship. Look at what Paul says first in verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now what's Paul doing there? He's, he's making a contrast and he's contrasting the first Adam with the second or last Adam, Jesus Christ. He's saying that death came by way of the first man and now life and resurrection life comes by way of the second man. And that, that phrase is a keynote for Paul, a man. For Jesus to be a fit mediator for man, he himself, the eternal son of God, had to be enfleshed in our humanity. So by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. And then Paul says, as he goes on here, look closely at it with me. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, for he is the mediator only of those who belong to him. But then notice what he says. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. So what is, what is Jesus doing between the time of his resurrection and our bodily resurrection? What is Jesus doing between his ascension and his second coming? He's doing at least two things. Pastor Dave actually prayed it this morning in, in the opening prayer. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding as our great high priest. He ever lives to make intercession for us, to bless us, to supply our every need. But he's also seated at the right hand of the Father as a king. He is reigning on high, ruling over his and our enemies, subduing his enemies. Because by his resurrection, God gave the man Christ Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, anticipates the lordship of King Jesus over creation. See, God has put all things underneath his feet. He has raised him from the dead as the, the king of the cosmos, as the man who has conquered sin and death and hell. And you see, the resurrection of Jesus for Paul guarantees the cosmic dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Raised in glory, seated at the right hand of the Father, he is subduing all of his enemies, for he has spoiled principalities and powers. Let me try to illustrate this. Some of you might be familiar with that that well-known illustration, I think it was Oscar Coleman who, who came up with it. The illustration of D-Day 
and VE Day during World War II. For Christians living today, D-Day has already occurred, and VE Day is yet to come. Uh, Historians are agreed that June 4th, uh, 1944, was the decisive victory that uh, led to the end of the World, World War II, when the Allied forces broke into Europe. I'm sorry, I said June 4th, I mean June 6th. The decisive moment when the, the Allied forces penetrated into Europe, and they say that was the day, the turning point of the war, when, when victory was already won. And yet we, we know that there were battles still to be fought, that there were enemies still needing to be subdued. There were people still needing to be set free. See, Jesus Christ and his resurrection has decisively triumphed over sin and death and hell. And he is manifesting his lordship. And my friends, we, we, we would see it if we but had the eyes to see it. He must reign until he has placed all of his enemies underneath his feet. You know, in the New Testament, and you know, this is, this is a key to understanding some of the seemingly contradictory language in the New Testament. That in the New Testament, there is a now and a not yet. So the New Testament will speak of believers as the children of God, and yet it also says we await the full adoption of the children of God, that is our, the resurrection of our bodies. There is a now and a not yet. Christ is now the cosmic king reigning on high. And you need to know that. You need to know that. And you need to be sure that you have fled under the care of his loving lordship because outside of this saving lordship, there is only Death and judgment. And so, when we confess that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we are confessing that his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. We're we're, we're confessing that his resurrection guarantees his universal lordship. But then there's a third thing. When we confess that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, we're confessing that his resurrection is the guarantee that he will restore the kingdom of God to the Father and that God will be all in all. Think for a moment. What was, what was the first Adam in the beginning? What was he commissioned to do? God placed him in the garden, blessed him, told him to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. He was called to exercise dominion, to spread the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth and to reproduce little image bearers who would reflect God's own character throughout the created world in service to him. And yet we know that the first Adam, instead of exercising Proper dominion brought all of creation in subjection to sin and death. Now with that in mind, look at verses 25 through 28, where Paul says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, Psalm 8. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under Christ. Now note this. When all things are subjected to him, that is the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. I think I should give you maybe 20 or 30 seconds to read that four or five times because my head was spinning for the first few times when I read that passage in preparation. So let's just, uh, well, well, these verses, they, they deserve hours of our attention, but let's just try to stammer about them for a couple of moments. First, I think these words, they show us that the, the ultimate end of the work of Christ, crucified, raised, and returning, the ultimate end of Christ's work is not us, but that God might be all in all. That's a wonderful thing, that Christ lived, died, and rose again so that the whole creation, in all of creation, there would not be a single discordant note to the tune of the glory of God. That through the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a whole new world order, a whole new creation has been brought into existence that is going to one day be in perfect conformity to the glory of God. The hills will sing his praise. The stars will shine to his glory. And through the restoration of the image of God in man, brothers and sisters, we will exalt and extol our God, recognizing him as our all in all. And so that means the glory of the resurrection Hear me out, hear me out here. The glory of the resurrection is not the assurance of my salvation, though that is gloriously true. The glory of the resurrection is that it seals the coming reality that God will be all in all. A renewed creation where his glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea And he will be seen and adored and exalted and loved as our all in all. You know, I think in our me-centered, you know, what's in it for me, age of narcissism, we need to hear that message again and again and again, that the triune God does not exist for my happiness, though he is my happiness. And... That also means that I exist for his glory. His his glory is my happiness. Have you discovered that in your life, dear friend? That you are most blessed, that you are most joyful, that you are most happy when Father, Son, and Spirit are most glorified and magnified in your life. You had that moment where you've discovered this. Oh, this, this is what I was made for. 
Now we need to look at this difficult passage very quickly here. What does Paul mean when he says all things are put in subjection? It is plain that he is accepted, the Father is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. If your head is spinning, what's Paul saying? All right, put on your thinker caps for a moment. Let me, let me put it technically first, and then let's try to understand it more simply. Paul is not speaking ontologically. He's not speaking in terms of being. He's speaking in terms of functionality. He's not speaking as though, okay, you've got God the Father up here, the ultimate deity, and you've got God Jr. down here, Jesus Christ. And in some sense, in his nature and in his essence, he is subject to the deity of the Father. That's not what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, because he's speaking of the man, Christ Jesus. He's speaking of the enfleshed Son of God, who willingly came into this world as the servant of his heavenly Father to do his Father's will. He's speaking of Jesus as the second Adam, the enfleshed Son of God who has come to undo what the first Adam did and to do what the first Adam failed to do, to exercise dominion on the earth and to bring the kingdom and present it to his Father. And so, As God, Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, equal in power and glory and substance and majesty and all of those other words we can throw in there. But as the enfleshed mediator, as the God-man, he brings himself and his people under the loving headship of the Father, functionally. Not in terms of his being as God, but in terms of his mediatorial role as the incarnate man who has undone what the first man did. And so it says the last Adam, the second man, that he brings the renewed creation under the headship of the father as the first Adam was commissioned to do. That God may be all in all. And so we confess, yes, as as the eternal Son with the Father and the Spirit, that Christ is the God who is all in all. But as our incarnate Savior, he he exemplifies the submissiveness and the service that the church is to render to God. So this is what we are confessing when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, crucified and raised. We are confessing the historical fact of Christ's resurrection. We're confessing the saving necessity of Christ's resurrection. We're, we're confessing the inevitability of, of Christ's resurrection. But we are also confessing His is mine. His is the Lordship. His is the kingdom to give to the Father the world brought under the dominion of the second man. 
So what is then, what is the great thing, dear friends, that we need to be clear about for ourselves? As we look at this passage with a view then to applying it to our own lives. It's there in verse 23, isn't it? Do you belong to Christ Jesus? That's the language Paul uses. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. It's those who belong to him who share in his resurrection to glory. It's his resurrection. It's only ours because he brings us to share in what is his. And we belong to Christ the moment we cast ourselves in self-abandoning faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment we come to trust in him. Just this week, uh, well, this past week, I should say, before bedtime, uh, Karis was asking lots of questions, as she often does. And uh, we were talking about the importance of trusting in Jesus. And, and she said, Dad, I, I, I trust in Jesus, but what does it mean to trust him? So I sat there for a moment and, and thought about how I should respond and what I eventually said to her is, I said, Karis, it means that you have come to see that Christ and Christ alone is the Savior that you need. And so you go to him and you say, Jesus, please take all that's mine and give me what's yours. Take my sin and all that it deserves, including condemnation and death. And give me your righteousness that leads to life. And the good news of the gospel, dear friends, is that anyone who comes to Jesus that way, he, not willingly, that's not strong enough, he delights to receive them. And so that's the question for us today. Do you belong to this Christ? Are you his? Because if not, your resurrection will be a resurrection to endless death. The Bible teaches us that we all will be raised. There is a general resurrection. But if you belong to him, you see, you are, you are linked to Jesus Christ, who has taken hold of life and passed into glory so that if you are connected to this Christ, it is only a matter of time till he brings along with him you into this life and this glory that is yet to come. Let me close with this. Dear friends, it's actually already happened. Christ has been raised. And it's only a matter of time before God shows the world all that that really means. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. That his resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. That his is the lordship and his is the kingdom. And that he is committed to returning the kingdom to you. 
And we look forward to that day when you will be all in all. Hasten the day, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.